0: Coming up on today's show, we'll revisit the new Alberta Advantage. That's the name of a position piece from Markham Hislop, an energy journalist and publisher. Vaccine warnings don't mean the vaccines don't work. In fact, just the opposite. The way we're handling this and the safety around them is working just as it's supposed to. And we'll talk conservatorships. We've talked about the energy transition here on the show before many, many times. Um and uh, we do that because that's the reality. And you know it. A, a, a lot of you don't like it, and I understand why. Um, but it, it is the reality of the world that we live in. So we talk about what does it mean for our province and where do we go from here. Um, it's the direction the world is moving in. And all the signs are there. You know, um, Doesn't mean we don't talk about what we do with our resources because they're also part of this conversation going forward for some time. I'm not one of these guys who says you're just going to turn off the taps. No, not at all. But as we transition, uh, and you know, you can talk about all all the governments bringing in all of their, carbon reduction plans and all the rest. Um, auto manufacturers are all in on this with all electric vehicles happening you know, sooner than we had expected. So far more talk about green initiatives in the oil and gas sector, too, because the major producers have recognized this transition that's happening and they, and they, they want to be part of it and they recognize they need to be part of it. So you, you see the mega giants in our province that have adopted some of these policies such as the Oil Sands Pathway to Net Zero Initiative, which was announced early last month. Um, Basically, what it is is having net zero in terms of carbon emissions from the oil sands in Alberta. So let's talk about where we are now and where we may end up in all of this and some of the barriers we face and some of the opportunities that we see. We're going to chat with energy industry analyst and writer Markham Hislop now, who's penned a new piece about this called... Revisiting the new Alberta Advantage. Oil sands net zero initiative is not nearly enough. Okay. Uh, Markham, first of all, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time as always. Good morning, Shay. So, yeah, a new piece. Very, very interesting. And it takes a real deep dive into this net zero initiative uh, surrounding the oil sands, which, as I say, I think, you know, the industry recognizes that that's the direction that they need to move in. Um, But you make the case that, This plan that was unveiled last month, it's not enough, right?
1: Well, the the plan is all about reducing emissions and getting to net zero by 2050. Right now, the oil sands... Uh, generate about uh, 80 megatons of GHG emissions per year. It's about 10 or 11 percent of the uh, Canadian emissions. And clearly the trend is is to get those down. As you said, the the producers recognize this. They're getting a lot of pressure from their investors. And they understand the direction that policy is going, that markets are going. And so they've they put they launched this, the big the five big uh, oil sands producers, you know, like Suncor and CNRL and Synovus and Imperial launched this. And the experts that I talked to think that it's a very credible plan. I mean, they will get there. But two of the CEOs also told uh, Bloomberg that it will cost about $75 billion, they think, of which two thirds, about $50 billion, will have to be provided by uh, the, the Alberta and Canadian governments. And so my argument is that emissions, lowering emissions is not enough. And Mark Little, the Suncor CEO, said in the interview, we only have one Achilles heel, and that's emissions. And I would argue, in fact, that the industry has three Achilles heels. One, the second would be uh, peak oil demand, the destruction of of oil markets uh, over time because of electrification of transportation. And the third Achilles heel is huge environmental liabilities. The tail the 37s uh, tailings ponds in northern Alberta, containing 1.3 trillion liters of uh, uh, of uh, tailings, is it, it, the remediation costs are conservatively estimated at 31 billion dollars, with only about 900 million in security applied against that. So, what I argued in the op ed. Is that if the Canadian government is going to be asked to be involved in this, it should use its financial, you know, investment in this to get the uh, uh, the producers to come up with a plan to address all three risks, mm-hmm. not just one risk.
0: Okay, so let's dig a little deeper into these three risks that are facing our oil sands. First of all, the emissions. Um, you know, we're talking about increased production in the oil sands, too. I mean, and uh, a lot of the issues that surrounded the oil sands, uh, you argue, have gone away in terms of pricing and things like that. We're doing better on that front, and it's more profitable, which means production goes up, which means emissions go up. So you still think that the net zero initiative can reach the goals that they want, even with increased production?
1: Well, the the CEOs certainly do, yeah. but history suggests that that is not likely to be the case, because What's happened over the last decade, for instance, is that the producers have done a very good job of reducing their emissions per barrel. So they used to have 87 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel, and they've reduced that down now to about 70. The problem is that over that period of time, production has doubled from 1.5 million barrels a day to 3 million barrels a day. And so the net. The uh, consequence of that is that absolute emissions have risen from 68 megatons a year to 80. And, and the, the latest uh, forecast for oil sands production from IHS market uh, predicts that there will be another 650,000 uh, barrels a day of supply come on stream between now and, and 2030. So you can see the problem here, you know, the map just doesn't work out. I mean, if you're you can lower the emissions intensity a little bit, but if you're if you're increasing your production, you know, by another 25%, that's going to make it very difficult. So I'm
0: not saying they can't do it. Yeah. I'm just saying this is a risk and a challenge they're going to have to address. There's going to need to be some adjustment there. Now the peak oil one is one that we get into big fights here on the radio about. Um, you know, there's all kinds of forecasts. I think we all assume that we're looking at at least what 20 years probably before, or 10, 20 years? I mean, that number is argued in different circles, but we haven't achieved it yet. So, um, but we know that eventually we're going to see a decline there, and that's obviously going to affect the oil science.
1: Well, look, I have interviewed dozens and dozens of global experts uh, about peak, the various aspects of, of peak oil. In fact, I interviewed the International Energy Agency not that long ago, and their analysts said that we think peak oil is coming in the late 2020s, the early 2030s, uh, at the latest. Okay. Now, they're generally considered to be the most conservative uh, forecaster, and there are plenty of other consulting firms and, and forecasters that think it's going to come much, much earlier. In fact, BP thinks it's already arrived. So... The But the trends are really clear. Yes. Just about half of oil consumed in the world is for ground transportation. And the industry, uh, the automakers are, you know, all, as you said, all in on electric. The climate policies are favoring electric. Consumers like electric. Battery prices are falling rapidly. On and on and on. The trends are all towards peak oil demand. The only issue now is when mm-hmm. and how quickly, when we do reach it, how, how steep the decline is. So if, you were a, if you're a government, uh, and a, you one would presume the producers, sitting at the table and realizing that this is a major uncertainty in your future, you can't lo- just look at the, at the best-case scenario. You also have to consider the worst-case sure. scenario. From the oil sands point of view, so what happens if peak oil arrives quicker? What happens if decline happens more quickly than we expect? Because the one truism that, as long as I've been doing uh, uh, this kind of journalism over the last decade, is that the energy transition has arrived quicker than we expect. And if this is the disruptive decade, the 2020s, everything you know is all the, the new tech, and our new technologies are beginning to push oil and gas out of the the marketers soon will be. So it just to assume the best case scenario, in my
0: opinion, is a dangerous way to approach this. Um, okay, and then quickly, the environmental liabilities. That's one that I hadn't thought of, but that's huge. I mean, you're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars that are out there, right?
1: Well, you know, there's 37 of these tailings ponds, and this has been an, issue, an ongoing issue for 40 years, yeah. 50 years. And the industry is no closer to solving it than they were, you know, a decade or two ago. And at the same time, the industry is incredibly profitable at the moment. Now, are they putting some of that extra money towards, you know, uh, reclaiming these uh, tailings funds? No, they're not. They're giving it back to investors in the form of dividends and and share buybacks. So worst case scenario now, if we're going to consider that, is let's say that, you know, peak oil arrives quicker than everybody expects, and maybe the, um, you know, decarbonization, the, you know, the net zero initiative isn't successful or even fails. And suddenly we're looking at 10 or 15 years and there's nobody left there. Who's gonna pay for the sure. tailings spot? You know, well, we, we've seen what's happened on the conventional production side where abandoned orphan wealth. wealth, you have to get paid for by, by the taxpayer. So I think it's a prudent, would be a prudent move by governments, uh, and I'm calling on the, the Canadian government to, to particularly bring this to the table. Uh, you know, it'd be a prudent move to make sure that these liabilities
0: are included in the negotiations. Okay, Markham, can I get you to hang on for a sec? You bet. Okay, we'll come back uh, with Markham Hissop and we'll talk about, those are the risks, those are the challenges that we face. Um, What are the opportunities and how do we best deal with those risks and make sure we're in the best position for the new Alberta Advantage? We'll talk about that after this. We're talking with Markham Hislop, who is an energy analyst and reporter and author about uh, the situation that Alberta finds itself in and where we go from here. Um, He's recently written an op-ed that is called Revisiting the New Alberta Advantage. Oil sands net zero initiative, not nearly enough. Now, Markham, I think we've covered the risks that the oil flat sands face going forward. Um, and as you say, it's going to require a pretty concerted effort to mitigate those risks and to capitalize on the opportunity, right? And government plays a key role in all of this.
1: Well, it does. And uh, when the uh, initiative was announced on June the 9th, the Alberta government was part of that announcement, the Canadian government was not. And I know I've seen a couple of uh, industry opinions. That they're pretty nervous about that because they think they see that as part of the uh, anti-oil sands, anti-oil and gas industry that supposedly yeah. uh, resides in in Ottawa. I don't. I don't see it that way. I I see this as the Canadian government uh, wanting will probably want to make sure that whatever it does with the oil sands going forward. It fits within its climate policies and its long-term uh, energy strategy. And there are things that the oil sands can do. And I want to make it really clear, Shay, this is not my op-ed, and my argument in general about the oil fans is not anti-oil sands. In mm, fact, know, it's yeah. just the
0: opposite. I know, and but this just is the, the thing, opposite. Mark, and this is part of the issue that we have, and you know this better than anybody, the second you and I come on the air and start talking about the transitional economy, I mean, I've got texts saying, we're not transitioning to anything, what are we going to? where are we going to get the electricity? People just get angry, and I understand why they do, but the fact of the matter is, it's the reality that we're living in, and we need to deal with it and look at it, and that's all we're doing.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, these are global trends. These are market trends that Canada has no control over, that Alberta has no control over. It has to adapt to those right. trends because it's going to affect the demand for. Now, but there are, there are a couple of opportunities there. So the obvious one, and, and certainly one that the CEOs are thinking about, is the fact that within the 100 million barrel a day global oil market, there's a subsector of that, about 10 million barrels a day for heavy crude oil. And that it, that market has actually been tightening over the last few years because Venezuela has lost a couple million barrels of, of production and Mexico is in decline. So assuming that those trends continue into the future, a decarbonized heavy crude oil coming out of the oil sands is actually in good shape to be around as long as there is demand for heavy crude oil. So that's, that's one good thing. But the second thing is that there is uh, research that's being done in Alberta through Alberta Innovates, the provincial agency, to turn bitumen into carbon fiber and asphalt asphalt for making roads and activated carbon, all kinds of other products. So there's an opportunity here for bitumen to go from being a feedstock for fuel Mm -hmm. to being a feedstock for materials. And if that Transition, if that research uh, turns out to be accurate. And I've interviewed a number of the scientists at Alberta Innovates. I've interviewed uh, Zolt, uh, uh, an executive from Zoltec, the big carbon fi- fiber manufacturing out of Missouri, and there's a lot of optimism that Alberta could become a major carbon fiber manufacturing uh, center. And if that can, can happen, and putting some additional federal funding in would certainly help, then the oil sands can be set up for a long term sustainable future, maybe out to the end of the century, maybe well beyond the end of the century. And Alberta Innovate says that up to be two, three, maybe even four times as much value comes out of a barrel of bitumen uh, for when you use make materials out of it than you do making fuel out of it. So there's a lot, there's actually a really optimistic upside to this as long as the industry is put on a, uh, a secure, sustainable, Uh, trajectory, which, in my opinion, the the, uh,
0: uh, Pathways Initiative doesn't do. Are we moving quickly enough, though, Markham? As you said, um, you know, the technology, once it starts, the advancements come quick. And and a lot of what we're talking about in terms of transportation use of oil is going to be, you know, changed by the electrification of transportation. And that's advancing by leaps and bounds. Um, it's not like we have years ahead of us to get this transition happening in Alberta. We need to be doing it now, right?
1: Well, from my point of view, uh, and we mentioned talked about this a bit earlier, is that the 2020s are really the big disruptive decade of this energy transition. So we're at the beginning. It's 2021. We've got, let's say, we have a nine-year window here. So, But the changes that we're talking about take a long time. None of this happens overnight. There's a lot of capital that has to be marshaled, a lot of R&D that still has to be completed, pilot projects, demonstration projects, commercialization of new technologies. So we really need to put a lot of capital into this and go hard over this decade so that when 2030 arrives, we're competitive and we've made that pivot that we need to make. And the problem here is and this is what I flagged in, in, the, uh, in the op-ed, is that we're only talking about one of those three risks. Right. We're only talking about the one Achilles heel, and we're ignoring the, the other two. And I'm suggesting that we need to put all three on the table, all three into the public conversation, and then marshal the
0: resources, including public investment, to make it happen. And as we said, you know, a lot of people just get angry at the mere thought of this, but, you know, industry seems to be recognizing a lot of the things that we're talking about. I mean, it, it's the reality that we live in. It's moving in that direction. And as you said, we have no control over that. But, it, you know, that's that's the arena that we're playing in. And denying it isn't going to help anybody.
1: Jay, I can tell you, I in the last 18 months, I've conducted over 600 interviews with global uh, energy experts. And when you get outside Alberta, and even when you get outside Canada, you get a completely different view of the energy transition that the technology and and to a lesser extent policy is changing so rapidly that you know and i 'm talking about around electric technologies like yeah. batteries and electric vehicles and power grids and all that it 's changing so rapidly the pace of change is so rapid that it It's hard when you're sitting in Alberta worrying about the oil and gas industry. You miss all of that, you know, those big, those big changes. And we need, and and Alberta needs to start thinking about that. It needs to start thinking on a bigger scale of where it fits into the energy transition, and it needs a plan. The Alberta government's got to get on board with this. You know, Premier Kenny has made a few small uh, steps in the right direction. Needs to make a lot more. And the federal government really needs to work with Alberta and industry on this and have everybody together pulling in the same direction and putting the resources on the table that are that are required and the The penalty the risk of not planning and not uh, getting this process started is that we arrive in two thousand and thirty unprepared and 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 we're being acted upon by right.
0: market forces and by policies. That we have no control over. We're the guy in the blockbuster wondering why everybody's watching Netflix and, and how we missed the boat, essentially, is what happens, because things that's, move on. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Alberta, Alberta runs the risk of being blockbuster, if not in 2030, maybe in 2040, and that's not that far away. <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Markham. Always a great chat. Thank you so much, sir. Always a pleasure, sir. That is Markham Hislop, who is an energy uh, analyst and energy journalist and publisher. All right. We're going to do another segment on the COVID situation surrounding vaccines and um, i a little hesitant. I'm not going to lie to you because talking about vaccines inevitably ends up in the same old song and dance and part of me just hates it. It really does. I have said countless times that I don't feel I'm in a position to try and change anyone's mind about this. Um, I don't need to win any arguments with you. I, I firmly respect your freedom to choose to get vaccinated or not to me. The choice is shockingly clear and it is to the majority of Canadians as we see by the numbers, but I understand that there are other people who feel differently. And uh, okay, whatever. The issue here though is whenever we have this discussion, invariably I hear from people citing garbage sources, the same ones over and over and over with made up facts, half truths, um, and it's it's exhausting. So what we're going to do here I feel I have an obligation to get the record straight, to just present the information in in in, in an accurate fashion. Uh, so what we're going to do here is get some discussion around vac- te- vaccine safety, specifically approval. You know, how does it work? What testing process did these vaccines go through? And then we're going to talk about the adverse effects, how those are reported, how those are recorded, and what they mean and what we can interpret from that data. Um, because they have become a wealth of misinformation. And I hear from people every single day, about the 10,000 people who've died in the U.S. And I've tried to explain why that's not true, um, but I continue to hear about it every day. So let's get some details on this. Let's break it down um, and uh, get some insight into how all of this works. Joining us, we have Justin Vesser, who is the manager of ambulatory pharmacy services at the University of Virginia. Uh, Justin, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, show. Okay, so when we talk about these vaccines, first of all, let's talk about the testing and the approval process of these vaccines because there's a lot of people who think that they didn't go through that. They're experimental sure. vaccines. We hear that all the time. They're experimental. They're no more experimental than any other drug or vaccine, correct? They went through the process. That is
2: exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, the, the, a vaccine is, at its heart, a drug or a medication, and there's a very specific process in the U.S. for um, the creation, the deployment, and the making it available to the public of a new drug. And this vaccine went through these vaccines, went through that process, just like any other drug. Uh, the the final approval process was slightly different, and that's what the emergency use authorization is all about. Uh, but the steps and the process uh, of how it, it gets tested from a lab all the way to a person's arm and then all the way to the public were the same.
0: And the same phases that it goes through The same animal testing A lot of people say it wasn't tested on, on, on It was It was tested on it rhesus macaques, And you can find that information on Pfizer's website Right, that's correct So no steps skipped It went through the same process How did it happen so quickly?
2: Well, so the emergency use, use authorization process is not limited to just the getting a new drug to market. It was also used for lots of other things like um, some of the, the novel testing uh, processes that came out during COVID. We needed to be able to find out if people were COVID positive or not um, prior to the vaccine's arrival. And so it was used for that also. It's used for usually when there's a public health crisis, um, the emergency use authorization process can kick in that something that might help stem the tide can get to the market quicker. Now, the confusion people have is they think that quicker means skip steps, and that's just not re- that's just not real. Um, what it means is that oftentimes. There's money involved, where uh, you know there's there's funds that are able to be made available for um, for massive amounts of research to be done more quickly. Sometimes there's steps that would normally be done sequentially that can be done at the same time. So in, in, instead of studying one aspect of the vaccine. And then once you're finished with that, starting a new study for another aspect of the vaccine, they can they can test at the same time. And so those are some of the tactics that uh that, that an emergency use authorization uses to be able to get it to people faster. But The number of people that are tested, the number of of, uh, labs, you know, tests that are done, the scrutiny placed on how safe it is and how effective it is, is the same.
0: Okay. Now, and I think this is a fair, and I'm receiving comments from listeners as we're talking right here. Why has it only been granted emergency authorization? Why don't they go ahead with full approval? I think that would make a big, big difference in the minds of a lot of people. So what is the difference there, and what is the process, and will that happen, and why hasn't it yet? Yeah, I think it
2: eventually will happen, and, and um, you know, the emergency use authorization, you have to think about what is the benefit to the company that's producing it of getting a full FDA authorization. Well, one of the benefits is during emergency use, they can't charge anything for it. So Pfizer, Janssen, or Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, they are not able to sell their vaccine to uh, a pharmacy or to a doctor's office the way that... Uh, that, that they would if it had undergone full emer- full, uh, FDA approval. Um, you know, the reasons for why that is, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't know all the reasons there. There are, uh, the, the process. For one thing, we're still in, in a, a worldwide pandemic. We're still in a state of emergency. And so I think that, uh, even though you're right, you, you use the word in your opening lines here that I think was, was very, uh, um, you know, prescient for all this. And that's the word hesitant. You were hesitant to talk about this because of all the, you know, you're, you're right. People flare up and people, you know, lock down. Um, But hesitancy is real and and vaccine hesitancy is real. And um, you know, Getting full authorization might help to reduce some people's hesitancy, but you know the, the cold reality is that that we are in uh, the middle of a pandemic still. It is raging across many other countries and many other parts of the world, uh, and many other parts of the United States, and I'm sure Canada also. Mm-hmm. So um, you know it would be uh, to, to try and enforce um, uh, full authorization to fight hesitancy when there may be some other benefits of continuing under the, the emergency use. It's probably just not time for that yet. And hopefully we can fight hesitancy in other ways because hesitancy is made up of a whole variety of different factors. Um, some of which you're right, there's no amount of arguing with anyone that's ever going to overcome those factors, but there are other elements of hesitancy that, uh, that we have a, a pretty profound effect on with the right tactics. And so, uh, that's what we've been doing at the university of Virginia to try and combat hesitancy in our community. And there are some things there that we have some control over. And I think that might be more effective than, um, you know, than, than just, Plugging for a full authorization just to time and see if that makes any difference to
0: people. Um, okay, the one thing that always comes up, and uh, I, I, I understand the process. I just wish that it wasn't such an issue. Uh, Vers. The vaccine adverse mm-hmm. event reporting system. I hear from people right. every single day saying 10,000 people have died in the United States. Um, no matter how many times I read directly from the VERS website saying, mm-hmm. don't cite this information as saying this is what's going on. Um, explain to us how VERS works. How does that reporting system actually operate? Sure. Uh, so VAERS and
2: VAERS equivalent, which is, you know, there's equivalents to it all over the world in different, uh, you know, in, in different countries. Uh, but but VAERS is there to be an easy, the easiest possible way for any adverse events that might be associated with the vaccine, but also may not, um, to be reported and can, can get back to the CDC, the FDA, and the manufacturers of the vaccine. It, it's just a portal for anybody to be able to say, I took this vaccine, and then this happened. Um, it, it, it's just like if you were doing a clinical trial for a new drug yourself, and you wanted to be able to do a survey or you wanted to have direct observation to find out what happened to people after they took the vac- after this drug or this vaccine. Did they get sick? Did they have a headache? Did they feel nauseated? Did they pass out? Uh, did they have Guillain-Barre syndrome? You know, those are the things that in a clinical trial setting, you you have someone who is directly observing those things. But once you get out to the wider world, um, you you don't have control over the massive numbers of people uh, who are all experiencing the vaccine, and you want to have a way for doctors and pharmacists and for anybody else you, and the patients themselves to be able to report those things because the more information we have, the more raw data we have, the better the chance that if we draw a conclusion from that data, that it will be the right conclusion. And that's all theirs is, is a portal to massive amounts of data that then Pfizer and Janssen and the FDA and everybody else can try and see, are there any correlations? And and once you have a correl- correlation, that's when you start to dig in to find out if there is any causation. And what people, a lot of people's fear factor has jumped in is they see the correlation and immediately assume the causation. And that's where a lot of this fear and misinformation is coming from.
0: And, you know, I mean, the system, as you say, we're talking about tens of millions of people having received these doses. So all these adverse effects are reported. And then um, rather than leaping to the big number that's set across the top of the website, once they see a trend or they see an ambiguity right. or something, they can track it. And that's how we end up with the warning. So the system is working as it's supposed to, Right.
2: It's working exactly as it should, and, and you know what? What a lot of researchers wish they had was they wish they had a sample size. One of the things that tells you that your that your your scientific study, the pure scientific method, and uh, any kind of clinical trial, one of the things that tells you that, that you're going to be able to trust the conclusions that you draw from whatever you're, you're testing, are do you have an adequate sample size? And because so the entire world was waiting on these vaccines to be able to come in and, and, and kind of break the grip that that uh, that the disease had on us. The the sample size was massive. I mean, massive. And in just a few months, you know, the 13 million people um, got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine in US in just a few months. And so, uh, any researcher it would be their dream to have a 13 million person sample size, so that then you could look at that data and and truly find things that uh that stand out and that make a pattern and then you can draw your conclusions from so so VAERS is working very well because it it enabled us to capture that massive sample size and you know if you look at raw VAERS data anybody can go to the VAERS website and you can run a report and you can find out how many people uh suffer from any given side effect. you can you can export those and 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 sort and filter them to your heart's content and so the transparency of it is is very comforting you know to to me as a as a scientist uh and so um, you know, and, and anybody can go and see that now you mentioned a number that I think is really important. People say uh, out of all the millions of people who um, you know got the vaccine that ten thousand died or, or a large number of people died yeah well that 's a perfect example of how the correlation doesn 't have anything to do with the causation so if you were to just take a sample size of thirteen million people across the country and just examine their traits over time you know how many of them have blonde hair how many of them have a mustache uh how many of them are left-handed how many of them happen to die of any cause during a period of time that uh you know that has been on the market you would see those patterns are there uh, but you wouldn't you wouldn't even think to draw conclusions from the hair color or the facial hair of of uh you know any of the people that that uh they got the vaccine right. because those things have nothing to do with each other. It, it just makes sense that out of 13 people during the period of time that it would be reasonable to report an adverse event to VAERS that many of them died uh, you know, of a heart attack or of any kind of natural cause that, that they all certainly would have died from no matter what, independent of whether or not they had had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or, or any of the other vaccines. And so what, what people do is they, see, they, they look at that VARES report and say, oh, my goodness, 10,000 people have died the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has caused this. And that is, that's is—that's just not good science. Uh, and it's just not good statistics either.
0: And we also see those cases that get reported. Uh, you're talking about um, uh, Guillaume Beret, Beret uh, related mm-hmm. to J&J. Um, you know, there's different, there's different risk factors that have been identified through these reporting systems. And once they're correlated, and you can find that causation and say, you know what, the vaccine is the reason this happened, those warnings are put out Far and wide. Yes,
2: that's correct. Yep, that's correct. And 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 again, you know, um, you're, you're exactly right. And once we've been warned of it, if you watch any, um, you know, uh, of the commercials that come on TV for a new medication, you know, two thirds oh, of the yeah. time that the commercial's running is talking about all the different possible side effects, and some of them sound horrible. Um, but you know, the, the it's it, any medical choice, any medication choice, or vaccine choice comes down to your risks versus your benefits, yeah. and. You know the 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 uh, the risk of developing Guillain-Barré from any source in the United States uh, is very small uh, per year. You know, a few thousand people per year experience that, and uh, you know there are, there are some known causes and there are some unknown causes, and many people who experience it that uh, we never find out what was the trigger. Um, but uh, you know the, the, what what we have seen from this this various data is that um, the period of time that, that the people who experienced it had to happen was fairly short after the vaccine administration and then cases drop off tremendously after, you know, about 40 days. And so, um, you know, the, the risk is there. It has still not been shown to be caused by the vaccine, but there is a correlation there. But the risk is microscopic compared to the risk of going unvaccinated and putting yourself at risk for you know, for a COVID infection, all kinds of bad things happen often to perfectly healthy people um, when they get sick with COVID-19.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Great stuff. Thank you so much, Justin. I really appreciate your time today.
2: I hope this was helpful. And uh, please uh, keep this message alive because uh, people need to hear this and, and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much.
0: Well, this is a story I've been watching for a while, and uh, based on the text line already, it's one you've been watching too. We haven't talked about it on the show until now. We've wanted to, but we had to get the right guest, Brittany Spears. This is a story that, to me, truly boggles the mind. And the deeper you dig and the more it continues to develop day after day, the more shocking it becomes. As far as I can tell, what we've got here is a young woman who has you know, she's faced some mental health issues in the past. No one denies that, but it would seem those issues have really been weaponized against her. As far as I can tell, she is a multi, multi, multi-million dollar industry that has been subjected to pretty much a hostile takeover. Her father controls every single aspect of her life. It's starting to chip away now in the past week or two, um, but he controls everything. And meanwhile, she continues to support dozens and dozens of people, but is not allowed to do anything in her own life, absolutely anything. She's governed wholly and completely down to birth control, everything. But she is fighting back, as you know, and that's why this story is making headlines, and it actually might prompt some legislative changes. So let's get the details around how this happened, how this system is supposed to work, and how it got so far off track. We're going to chat now with Naomi Khan, who is a law professor and actually teaches this. Um, um, thank you so much for joining us, Naomi. I appreciate your time. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Okay. So let's get some clarity around this legal battle. That's the center of all of this. Britney Spears was placed under a conservatorship many, many, many years ago. Um, what is a conservatorship? When is it used? How is it supposed to be used?
3: Well, a conservatorship is comparable to, um, to what in Alberta is called a guardianship. And generally, the goal of a guardianship or a conservatorship, and it's called both of those things in the U.S., Mm -hmm. is to provide for... Someone to manage either the, the personal affairs, so, so medical decisions where somebody lives, and or the financial affairs, financial matters of someone who is unable to manage them, him or, or who is unable to manage them themselves. And so that's the basic idea. It's a very, very old concept. Um, comes from 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 britain from from long ago and it's just the idea that there are people who are unable to take care of their own financial or personal matters and need someone who is legally able to watch out for them now you can see that would be a useful
0: mechanism in some cases without a doubt but what is the legal standard that that, that that's the question you know what do you have to be de- declared um, something i mean how is that established that okay this is what we need to do in this instance
3: What typically happens in the U.S., and I'm sure I suspect in Canada as well, is that when there is a suspicion that someone might need a conservatorship, a concerned person, and it could be that the person themselves yeah. goes to court and gets a court order providing that there will be someone else with the legal authority to make decisions on behalf of the person subject to the conservatorship. And the person subject to the conservatorship, at one point, that person was called the ward. And as a way of recognizing the autonomy or the, the at least the limited autonomy of that person, we, that. that. That person is now typically called the person subject to the conservatorship or guardianship as a way of recognizing that they are still a person. They are not a ward. Gotcha. Okay. Now, this happened to her, I believe, in
0: 2008 is when this started. Um, Is it up for review or is it just a blanket thing that happens and and that's the way we are from now on? Or or is this something that is reviewed and and takes a look at this you know, every five years, every two years or something like that? Or is it just it's over and
3: done? Well, first of all, the person, the, the conservator, the guardian, is has has responsibilities to the guardianship and is supposed to be acting in the best interest of the person subject to the guardianship. So, so let's let's start with that basic responsibility, and that is supposed to be legally an legally enforceable responsibility. Okay. The next thing is, as you said, about review.
1: Yeah.
3: Typically, these are. Depending on the the state, but in California, there is a review after the first six months, and then there's supposed to be a review either every year or every second year, plus the Guardian or the conservator, is supposed to be submitting reports to the court on just how the conservatorship is proceeding with respect to financial matters. So there is supposed to be court oversight of the conservatorship. There is also some court investigation. Uh, Importantly, as well, in California, although not in all other states, in California, the person subject to the conservatorship is entitled to have a lawyer. So there's there's some protection. And and as you said, very often these are incredibly useful mechanisms for someone who is absolutely unable to manage their own their own lives sure. themselves. Absolutely you could see that for sure.
0: But in this specific, specific case, um you mentioned a lawyer. She's not allowed to hire her own lawyer. Um, it seems there's a disconnect to me here. How can somebody who allegedly can't handle their own affairs down to choosing their own lawyer or, or, or you know, um, handling their own birth control, for heaven's sake, still single-handedly fuel an industry that earns hundreds of millions of dollars every year, world <laughs> tours, um, you know, residencies in Vegas? How does this system allow to happen this many years after when clearly she's functioning in many, many
3: ways? This this is certainly an unusual situation for an unusual conservatorship for the reasons precisely that you have stated. And it's unclear, since we don't have access to any physician reports, it's unclear just why this conservatorship is continuing, given all of the other indicia of her ability to... Manage her life. As I said, we don't have all of the details. The judge should have access to all of the information, including the court investigative report
1: yeah.
3: um i should also say the judge has now decided and and, and let me uh, let me also clarify that a conservatorship can be somewhat limited or it can go as far as requiring that any decisions made by the the person subject to the conservatorship would be subject to court review including decisions as personal as whether the person can get married. So it's it's not there are some in-between steps. It doesn't have to be all decisions have to be made by the court, but it is true that in a full conservatorship, the, the, the person loses a lot of decision-making autonomy. Um, as for how this is ongoing, it looks like now that Brittany has been able to change lawyers it looks like this lawyer might be it it, it seems as though the lawyer is considering filing papers to try to terminate the guardianship those haven't been filed the new lawyer is relatively new there is also in some of the earlier testimony um in some of the earlier reports, sorry, uh, Brittany had said that she had started, she, 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 she'd gotten to know the lawyer who had been representing her ever since the, the conservatorship was started. She seems quite relieved now, however, based on newspaper reports, to have been able to choose a new lawyer to represent her interests. Now,
0: um, when you have somebody like Britney Spears involved in a situation like this, uh, one of the biggest names on the planet, we're now starting to see some uh, legislators in the United States. This has risen to the level of now, the entire concept of how this system is operated needs to be looked at so we don't see issues like this. As somebody who who, who works around this and studies this issue, um, it appears to me, and I think you would agree, that this seems to be abuse of conservatorship. Is this something that happens before? Is this a good opportunity for us to take a closer look at the way these kinds of situations are managed?
3: Well, let me see. I, I am not ready to agree with you that this is an abuse of conservatorship. Really? Um, I, 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 because I don't know, you know, you as, know as a lawyer, I, I don't know all of the details. I think this, this certainly, um, I, I, there are, there's a free Britney movement yeah. that is concerned about this. Uh, uh, based on what we know, she's been expressing concerns about the guardianship for for years, and she has sought to have her father removed as conservator, or at least have her father supplemented as conservator. There are, I, I, I think it's, People need to remember that there are, and and I know this is true in in Alberta, that there, there are possibilities Short of having a conservatorship imposed on you that people can take, there are um, uh, adults can sign a form called a supported decision-making authorization. And there are also other steps that individuals can take if they are worried about having a conservatorship like this imposed. In the U.S., we actually have no idea how many conservators how many conservatorships or guardianships there are because not all states keep requisite data and so, there is no centralized reporting mechanism. So, we don't, first of all, we don't know how many conservatorships there are, and so we, we don't even know how much abuse of conservatorships exists because we can't get a read on how many conservators there are. We don't know whether conservatorships have been imposed on people when they should not have been imposed. We don't know whether there would have been le- less restrictive alternatives. And so, there is a movement to at least collect better data and then also to provide better resources so that courts are better able to monitor these situations.
0: Yeah, it is such an interesting story. Um, Naomi, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This was great. That is Naomi Khan, who is a legal professor in the United States and deals with this very topic. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.